Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. We probably all have food memories that link us viscerally to certain moments in our life. I enjoy watching the show Top Chef, and in one of the recent seasons, there was a contestant uh, whose nickname was Buddha, and he talked about Marry Me Pasta, which was a dish that his wife, before they were married, made uh, for him and some friends uh, before they really even knew each other. And he thought it was so good that he said to her, if you're not married by the time you're 30, I'm going to marry you. And they did end up getting together. And when he proposed to her, he made that same dish. So it became known as Marry Me Pasta. And then, of course, he made that as part of his journey to winning Top Chef. Uh, But we have these food memories, some of them not quite as tasty maybe as what a top chef would make. But I think about making franks and beans when I was a kid with my dad, or making rosettes, this Norwegian Christmas cookie with my mom. Uh, and these, these memories are really not actually primarily about the food, are they? They're, the food is kind of this conduit that takes us to these moments where we experience love or joy, or maybe belonging or, or forgiveness even. And of course, not all food or meal memories are good. Sometimes we remember meals where we experienced hostility or exclusivity, uh, pain and brokenness. But the point is that there's power in a meal. There's something about that tangible participation in eating with others that has the power to change us and shape us. In the Gospels, which are the the four books in the New Testament that are accounts of the life of Christ, they talk about how much Jesus ate. We we see that he ate with other people a lot. Um, And in the book, A Meal with Jesus, which is part of the inspiration for this series, uh, Tim Chester reminds us that there's three ways that scripture in the New Testament describes Jesus' coming using this phrase, the Son of Man came. So we see that in Mark chapter 19 or 10, the Son of Man came not to serve, excuse me, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or in Luke chapter 19, we see the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So both of these uh, are statements of purpose. This is why Jesus came. But then there's another statement of Uh, Jesus is coming that says the Son of Man came in Luke chapter 7 eating and drinking. So this is not a statement of purpose but a statement of method. This is how Jesus came. The Son of Man is this title given in the Old Testament book of Daniel for the one who would come before God in power and glory and establish his everlasting kingdom. And the Jews of Jesus' day expected that the Messiah would come and would vindicate the righteous and overtake the Roman Empire. But Jesus comes in this very ordinary way, 
eating and drinking. And he ate and drank so much that his enemies accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. So in this series, Meals with Jesus, we're going to see story after story in the book of Luke of Jesus engaging with people around the table. One scholar commenting on how often we see Jesus eating in Scripture says that in, the, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. So Jesus spent a ton of time around the table. It's where he redefined and and gave substance to the kind of kingdom that he was bringing. It was his context for ministry. It's where he did evangelism and discipleship. So through this series, we'll discover the blessings God has for us around the table. And today, we're going to see how Jesus uses the table as a place of grace. So we'll look at a passage in Luke chapter 5 today. If you do have your Bibles or Bible app, go ahead and open those up. Luke is the third gospel in the New Testament. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So we already mentioned how food links us to certain moments in our lives, but it also links us to people. You know, we get connected with friends and family around the table. We're connected with strangers who are often on their way to becoming friends. We're connected with people around the world if we think about where our food comes from. And when we share a meal with someone, we're building a relationship. So over a meal, we make decisions, we fight sometimes, we make up, we create bonds and memories, and we welcome guests. And in this passage, Levi, the tax collector, has invited Jesus to his home, and he makes this great feast. And we read that there's a large group of others, uh, other tax collectors and others who are also enjoying the meal. Now, in the ancient world, the table had an important role. So usually meals were shared in the context of an extended family or certainly with other people in the same social class as you. And and the table really reinforced these social boundaries um, and differences in status, whether that was social, religious, economic. Uh, And even around the table, there were certain seating arrangements that would indicate someone's importance or relationship to the host. And of course, if you weren't in the same social class as the host, then you weren't even invited to the table. But sharing a meal was more than just the food. Uh, It was more than this casual contact, but it represented friendship and intimacy and unity and welcome. So when Jesus was eating with tax collectors and what the Pharisees call sinners, uh, he's defying the social expectations of the day, and he's identifying himself with that segment of society. 
I think about this lunchtime scene in high school, you know, when you enter the cafeteria and you see all the different groups of people. There's, you know, the band kids, the artsy kids, the athletic kids, the cool kids. I don't know what all the categories are today, uh, but everyone's trying to find their place. And there's kind of these unwritten rules about who sits with whom. And I think we all, or at least I, have this inner fear of being back at the high school cafeteria. I remember this time uh, I went to a work party, a dinner party for my husband's work. Uh, and Greg and I, they had the hors d'oeuvre time before the dinner, and everyone's just kind of casually chatting, and, and we're talking with some friends and saying, hey, you know, who are you sitting with at dinner? Do you want to sit with us? We wanted to make sure we had our, our table, had our place defined. Um, but in Jesus' day, the tax collectors were considered the lowest of the low, and particularly in the eyes of faithful Jews. So they were known as dishonest cheaters. They were working for the enemy, for the Roman government. They were collecting money from their own people for those who had overtaken uh, Jewish land. And they were considered traitors to the Jewish nation and traitors to God. So when Jesus eats with tax collectors, he's thought to be eating with the enemy. And eating together, as we said, signified friendship. So we read in Luke 7:34, the Son of Man came, eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Friend of tax collectors. It's right up there with gluttonous drunkard. And we see in the passage we're looking at in chapter 5 that the Pharisees complain about Jesus eating with tax collectors. And Jesus responds in verse 31, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Part of what Jesus does when he uses the table as a place of grace is he creates a people who are changed by grace. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, and they were the righteous, or so they thought. The Pharisees prided themselves on being the most holy, and they followed the ritual purity laws in the Old Testament to the extreme. Uh, they would only eat foods that were considered clean, and they would only eat with people who were considered clean, and they worked really hard at keeping these regulations. And they expected that the Messiah would come to justify them for their righteousness. But Jesus defies the expectations of purification, and he looks beyond the outward ritual of the righteous. He likens himself to a physician who has come to heal the sick, and the sickness is one of the heart. A doctor can't do her job by avoiding sick people, and Jesus couldn't do his job by avoiding sinful people. Jesus implies that someone can look clean on the outside, but still have a heart of self-preservation or self-righteousness, and it's those people who wouldn't think of themselves as sick and therefore would have no interest in seeking out a great physician. I remember when I was younger in my faith, I, I grew up in the church, and whenever there'd be a time of confession, like, like we had just a little bit ago, I'd kind of struggle in that moment to know exactly what sin to confess, because I was a rule follower, still am oftentimes, and maybe a little bit of a goody two-shoes. And so when I'd be thinking about you know that week or what I had done wrong or, or not done right, I, 
I struggled to think of what I could confess. And that was just such a, an example of my self-righteousness. Um, and I assumed that my rule following was moving me closer to God, when in fact, I was making my performance into a God. I was approaching my faith like the Pharisees. I was prioritizing legalism and you know, judging others who didn't measure up, excluding those who threatened my image of capability. And in my mind, and I wouldn't have stated this explicitly, but just by the way I was living, in my mind, my righteousness or, or salvation was in people viewing me as someone who was put together and had the right answers but I'm thankful that God's grace even has a place for me at the table. And by his grace, he began showing me my sin-sick heart. As I became more aware of God's holiness and his righteousness, I became more aware of my sin and lack of righteousness. And as I grew aware of my sin, I realized how big God's grace was to forgive it and the cross became bigger, my understanding of grace continues to grow deeper as God shows me that more and more. Maybe for you it's not competence, but maybe it's being accepted by a certain group of people or having a beautiful home or looking a certain way or having a successful career. Is there a way that you tend to try to prove how clean or good you are? Or is there a way you, you tend to hide your sin-sick heart? There are tons of different ways that we pursue righteousness, um, seeking to justify ourselves, but these things never really work because first of all, they don't truly fulfill because we're created to love and worship God. And secondly, they don't work because we're never actually gonna be good enough. Salvation only comes from God through faith in Christ, and he offers us salvation not because we're good enough, but because of his grace. I love how Todd Allen said it a couple weeks ago, God loves us not, or because of who God is, not because of who we are. And we, when we don't measure up, God doesn't condemn us, but he is condemned in our place. It was radical for Jesus to practice open table fellowship with those who were unclean. And whenever Jesus would share a meal with someone, it was a, a come-as-you-are invitation, whereas the Pharisees were saying, no, first you need to go take a shower, change your clothes, get cleaned up. Jesus invites to the table those who aren't good enough, those who are the outsiders, the messy, the ordinary, the sin-sick. He invites you and me. The only ones who get left out are the self-righteous who don't think they have a need for God. All you need to join Jesus around the table and receive his blessings of grace is need. All you need is need. So when Jesus, or excuse me, when we receive God's grace, then what is the proper response? Well, Jesus uses the table as a place of grace to create a people changed by grace who then proclaim and pass on grace around their tables. Did you notice the first thing Levi does after being called to follow Jesus is throw a party? Isn't that such an appropriate response for someone who's been changed by God's grace? 
What we see in Luke chapter five, early in that, earlier in the chapter, Jesus is enacting this radical grace. He heals a leper, which if you know about lepers in scripture, they are the unclean, and they, if someone would touch a leper, they would become unclean, but Jesus actually makes the leper clean. And he heals a paralytic, and he forgives his sin. Um, He indicates at the end of chapter five that he's doing this new thing. He's bringing about a new salvation which transforms hearts and reorients lives to a new way of humility and service and hospitality. I saw an old movie recently called Babette's Feast. Uh, It's about two sisters who live in this small town in Denmark. Their father was a pastor and had since passed away. Uh, And they took in this French refugee who had come to them from the revolution. She was desperate. They took her in. Her name was Babette, uh, and they made her their maid. So the sisters wanted to celebrate their late father's 100th birthday uh, with a small dinner party with their faith community, which had started to kind of disintegrate a little bit. They were experiencing some factions and divisions, some casting blame and arguments. Uh, And during the time that Babette had been with the sisters, she came into this large sum of money, 10,000 francs. And so she had offered to cook the meal for the father's birthday celebration and pay for it herself. So the sisters kind of reluctantly agreed, um, and they assumed that after the dinner, Babette would move back to France now that she had enough money to do so. So Babette begins to prepare the dinner, and what the sisters don't realize is she's putting together this elaborate feast with ingredients, the the finest ingredients. She was importing them from France, uh, and she takes days and days to prep for this meal. She's getting everything just right. And as the sisters see everything coming together for this meal, they start getting a little bit concerned because they were pretty, pretty conservative. They were simple people who used their money to serve the poor in their community. And they realized that what Babette was doing was pretty excessive. So they went to their, their faith community in their village who would be partic- participating in this dinner party. And, and they were just so sorry. And they, they were explaining this. And they said, you know, we're, we're so sorry. We didn't realize it was going to be this over the top. So the guests all agree that when they come to the table, they'll eat the food, but they're not going to say anything. They're going to maintain this kind of modest attitude. Um, They'll be polite as they eat and drink, but not really take pleasure in it. So the day comes for the feast. Babette is all ready. Uh, There's 12 guests at the dinner party. And course by course, the food and drinks begin to be served, and the guests partake. And you can see as they take each bite, they're starting to really enjoy this delicious meal. They're savoring each bite. And what happens is these walls begin to break down within their community. There starts to be forgiveness and reconciliation. And there's joy and they're reflecting on what God had done among them. There's appreciation and love for one another and that grows stronger. It's this powerful image of what can happen over a meal. And after all the guests leave, the sisters say to Babette how wonderful of a meal it is, and and they're ready to say goodbye to Babette. But she says, I'm not moving back to France. You know, there's no one left there who's waiting for me, and and besides that, I don't have any money left. And the sisters were kind of surprised, and they say, well, what happened to the 10,000 francs that you just received? 
Babette reveals that back in France, she was a famous chef, the chef of this top restaurant in France. And dinner for 12 at that top restaurant cost 10,000 francs. Babette had used everything she had to serve this community. What an act of grace. She gave her whole self so this community could experience belonging and forgiveness and reconciliation. And in this same way, Jesus pours out his whole self. He gives up his privileges. He became poor. He gave his very life so that we can partake in the feast that will change ours. It's at the feast of grace that Jesus offers where we receive this over-the-top, excessive grace. It reflects God's abundant generosity and love. After they find out that Babette gave everything for this meal, the sisters ask her why she did it. And Babette says, it wasn't just for you. What she realizes is that when we open our tables to others, that means others get to experience the same radical grace and hospitality that we're able to show them because of what Christ has done for us. So when Levi throws this party for Jesus, it's indicative of the new radical grace that Jesus is enacting. Levi opens up his home because he's experienced God's love and grace, and he wants to introduce his friends to Jesus. One of our Brethren in Christ core values is that we are experiencing God's love and grace. So are you experiencing that today? Jesus Christ freely gives his salvation. He transforms us by his spirit, and that compels us to want to share that, extend that to others. And when we open up our homes with this heart of passing on the grace that we have received, our homes become places of grace, places where our guests are introduced to Jesus and can experience his love and acceptance and healing and hope. During this sermon series, which is going to last about seven weeks until September 4th, we want to extend a challenge to you to open up your home and your table one time, one time in seven weeks. We encourage you to pray and ask God who in your sphere of influence he might be leading you to invite to share a meal with in your home, experiencing this grace-filled hospitality. That might be someone from our church family. Maybe there's someone you don't know very well who's here. Maybe there's someone you've even had some conflict with, and this is an opportunity to come together and experience reconciliation and grace. Or maybe you regularly eat with other Christians, and this is an opportunity for you to prayerfully consider who might be in your neighborhood or community or your work that you can invite into your home to reflect God's grace there. Not to do this because they're a project or, 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 you know, it's our homework, but it's an opportunity to extend the welcome of Christ and take that next step in building relationship. Now, I know there's lots of reasons why we think this could not work. My house is too messy. My house is too small. I'm worried about COVID transmission. You know, I'm too busy. I'm not a good cook. 
Cesar Kalinowski is a missional community leader, and he talks about the importance of sharing meals with believers and unbelievers, and he reminds us that this isn't actually about us. Opening up our table is about Jesus being seen and experienced through us. So meals embody God's grace. Remember, it's, you know, grace isn't about being the perfect host or the best cook or having everything in order. That's the heart of the Pharisees. That's that focusing on the externals. We might envision a meal that would look like this, and it may actually end up looking like this. (laughs) But grace is about welcoming people as they are helping others to see and experience Jesus through us. So don't be afraid to ask your guests to bring something along, to ask them to help clean up afterwards, keep it simple. You know, we often think doing something like that makes us out to be a bad host. We want to just do everything for them, but, but actually that invites them to participate in this experience and helps them to feel part of the family. So we just want people to feel welcome and to come as they are. Um, This doesn't mean it's going to be easy. You know, someone is coming into our space. It could be uncomfortable. It might take a little vulnerability. Uh, It might mean the dishes don't get put away exactly as you like them. I'm talking to myself on that one. It might mean you have to step away to deal with a tantrum from your preschooler. Talking to myself on that one, too. But it doesn't mean we have to be perfectly put together. But remember that Jesus welcomes to the table those who recognize their need. And it's okay if we show a little bit of our need during that time as well. And that actually helps people to participate in this beauty of fellowship, knowing they can come as they are. So one time in the next month and a half, who is God leading you to invite over to your home? We've got three meals a day, seven days a week for seven weeks. That's 147 opportunities. Now, granted, some of you might work and you eat your meals at work, so maybe it's a little bit less than that, but you get the idea. There's plenty of opportunities. Doesn't have to be as extravagant as Babette's feast, a simple invitation to come together around the table. Um, just one more comment on that. If there is a reason, you know, for, for some reason that this can't work well for you, I encourage you to think about who you might partner with as a co-host for a meal. Um, it's always wonderful when we can build relationships between some of our church friends and our community friends. But the point here, I think you get the point, is sharing a meal in our homes is a reflection of the heart of God. And this challenge is to consider your place of hospitality and to respond to who God might be leading you to invite to your table. What a privilege it is to be a people changed by God, by his grace, and to proclaim his grace around our tables. There's some folks in our church who are already opening up their homes and hearts pretty regularly. Um, I think of other, I think of Several of you in our church who do this, and one example is Phil and Elaine Tuma, who are going to come forward now and share uh, some of their experience of what it looks like as everyday followers of Christ to extend God's grace to those whom God has put in their path. So Phil and Elaine, come on up. We want to hear a little bit from you about how God is using you to extend his grace.
morning. I guess it's still morning, I think so. We've been coming to Grantham for a while. We've been members for about four years, but for the first number of years, we were splitting our time between Dillsburg, uh, living in Dillsburg, and living at Macha Mission Hospital in Zambia. Now that we're retired and living uh, in Dillsburg all the time, we've become part of a small group here at Grantham, and we've also uh, started participating in the uh, discipleship learning community, uh, both of which we really love and appreciate. These more intimate spaces reflect the scriptural concept of iron sharpening iron, which helps us grow as followers of Jesus. It's also a great way to get to know our brothers and sisters here at Grantham. Last year in 2021, we, like many of you, watched in dismay as thousands of Afghan refugees had to suddenly leave their homes, their families, uh, in order to save their own lives. And they did not know where they, were, where they were going or how or when they might even get to where they were trying to go. And God moved our own hearts to be involved in some way in helping to welcome and resettle these Afghan refugees. After all, we are commanded in the Bible to welcome strangers and to love all people. God has blessed us uh, through much of our lives by both having friends from other cultures and also having lived cross-culturally. So we felt that we should not hold those privileges tightly to ourselves, but open ourselves to use that blessing and experience to help others. A group of us from here at Grantham Church, including the Burts, the Beckings, the Gassaways, we began meeting with some people from other um, non-BIC churches in the Mechanicsburg area, as well as a case manager from Church World Services, which is one of the refugee agencies operating in our area. After months of preparation, our multi-church welcome team received a family of four in February, a husband, a wife in their 20s, and two young children. It has been an absolute joy getting to know this dear family. In March, when the Nias family had to move out of their temporary Airbnb before their next home was available, we invited them to live with us for several days until their new home was ready. It was an amazing and gratifying experience. As we shared meals together with the Nias family in our house, they taught us some of their traditions. For example, sitting on the floor when you eat, rather than at a dining room table, or eating lots of delicious flatbread, which Najiba, the wife, expertly made for us at every meal. And of course, learning to eat halal foods, those which are permissible in their Muslim faith. While they were with us, we did eat our meals at the dining room table. They graciously understood that if we sat on the floor, they'd have trouble picking us up at the end of the meal. They learned that we gave thanks to God for our food before we eat our meals. Uh, they witnessed how we communicate freely and laugh together as a couple. In the Nayaz family, only Nasir, the husband, uh, understood and spoke English. So we all laughed along with them, uh, with uh, understandings and misunderstandings uh, as we tried to speak and gesture in our communications. 
God teaches us so much about grace, generosity, and hospitality through people from other lands and cultures. To us, it's part of the beauty of God's creation and desire for all people to be part of his kingdom. Jesus taught us by example to welcome and share our lives with others, and especially those who might be different from us. In the book of Acts, Jesus says we will be his witnesses through the power of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Sometimes we go to faraway places to be his witnesses, and sometimes the ends of the earth comes to us. May God continue to give us open eyes and hearts to see the opportunities to help enlarge his kingdom. Thank you, Phil and Elaine. If it's helpful for you to have a few questions to reflect on as we um, close up the message, there's a few thoughts. If all you need is need, how can you cultivate the awareness of your need for a spiritual physician or savior? Are there any barriers you recognize that might be hindering you from opening up your home or heart to others? And I encourage you to talk to God about those things. Where are you intentionally forming relationships that express the hospitality and grace of God? And if you're not sure, I encourage you to start around your table. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for the welcome you have extended to us. Thank you, God, for your generosity, kindness, and grace in welcoming us to participate in the feast of your love. God, we are humbled when we realize our brokenness and sin. There's so, so many times we uh, act as the Pharisees with that self-righteous heart. Lord, show us our sin sickness and help us to come to you and to receive your forgiveness and grace. And Lord, lead us to, to extend that to others. Speak to us about who we can share your love and grace with around our tables. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>